Well, what happened? We said our, our strategic, um, we had a strategy day and said, listen, what, what business are we in? And, and we said, we're enhancing lives. So that's our mission, enhancing lives. So what can we do that does enhance lives? We've got the water that enhance lives. Um, we need to go into a different category. And so, and so we said, let's go into, let's make our two categories, healthy living and healthy homes. And so home tech, which we bought off Paul Nielsen, that was a, um, that was the home business. And since then we've added to that, we've added to the healthy living part. Those are the two segments that we stay in and focused on and all our acquisitions are in those, will be in those two fields. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, for the second time ever, we are inside the mind of an acquirer, where we're sitting down with the founder of Just Life Group, Tony Falkenstein. But before we get there, I would highly recommend that you head over to the episode page at builttosell.com. During today's conversation, John and Tony will talk about accretive acquisitions. And if you don't know what that means, I have linked a great article that John wrote, which describes in detail what an accretive acquisition is. Along with that article, I have linked the first episode in the series with Robert Glazer, along with everything referenced during today's podcast. So be sure you head over to builttosell.com. Okay, now let me tell you about today's guest, Tony Falkenstein, who in 1988 started Just Life Group, which at the time was one of the first water cooler companies in New Zealand. Now in 2016, Tony identified the need to diversify into new service offerings and opted to start acquiring companies. Since then, they have acquired six businesses, all aligning with their overall focus of enhancing lives through healthy living and healthy homes. Here to share with John how he thinks about acquiring companies is the founder of Just Life Group himself, Tony Falkenstein. Enjoy. Tony Falkenstein, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Great to be it's here. Great. Yeah, it's great to have you all the way in New Zealand. And thank you for getting up early for me. I, uh, I'm excited about this interview because this is... Uh, you know, inside the mind of an acquirer. And so Just Life is an acquirer of companies. And so I'm really keen to find out what goes into an acquisition. How do you evaluate potential acquisitions? Before we go there, though, can you just describe what Just Life Group does? Okay, John. Well, I started Just Life uh, 32 years ago, but we were into uh, water coolers. We we're one of the first water cooler companies. Uh, providing water coolers through the country, um, all on rental basis. So it's, it's a subscription model. Um, we've now got about 25,000 water coolers on rental. And uh, and probably a, about five or six years ago, um, the water cooler industry had become relatively mature. So we're not putting out the same numbers as we were uh, 10 years ago. So... And you know, as a result of that, and this is a good thing about a, a rental business or a subscription business, is you have great cash flow because you're not buying a whole lot of new products, you know, new uh, water coolers. So we have great cash flow, and we thought we need to diversify 
to um, be able to keep the growth going. And we've got the cash cash flow to do that. So, it, so water um, coolers, so, so let me understand water coolers. I think I, I visualize them. Uh, you, you have a little unit inside your kitchen. There's a plastic jug that gets placed in the top and then you can draw water out, fresh, clean water, as opposed to using the tap water. Am I am I well, visualizing the business correctly? Yeah, 90% of the coolers are um, are in businesses. Okay. So that's probably what you call uh, spring water or home yep. delivery, home yep. delivery and business delivery. Um, so we do both, we do delivery, and then we also inline a water cooler. So it looks like a water cooler without a bottle on top, and there's a filter between the tap and the water cooler. Excellent. Okay, that's super helpful. And and you looked at it in and New Zealand obviously is a finite market, four or five million people if I got the numbers right. right. And so you reached a point where the water business was becoming mature. And I guess there was that strategic decision to say, okay, we, we can acquire other companies in in that we have the cash flow, we have recurring revenue, and we've got, you know, we've got all these customers, so they they need other things. I guess there was another potential strategic avenue, which would have been to go outside New Zealand. We've been successful in New Zealand selling water coolers. Let's go to Philippines, Australia, or whatever. Take me through your decision making as to why you chose to to diversify other products and and become more dominant in New Zealand rather than sell more water outside of New Zealand? Well, the first thing we did was, in fact, one of our mistakes, we uh, we purchased a company in Australia, very similar to ours. And unfortunately, the, um, the sales manager and a sales team took off within a few months and set up their own company. So 30% of the business went away straight away. And, uh, and it was really, it was a real struggle that in the end we, uh, we sold the business and went away, came back to New Zealand and here we are. So then we decided on this acquisition strategy. Got it. I love, I love the, the candor and the, the, the experience. We often learn so much more from, from mistakes than, than, than successes. Did you have a non-compete agreement with the sales manager of the Australian company? What had happened was we bought the company. Um, the previous owner, he he left, and a lot of the records weren't there. Now, I don't want to accuse anyone, but uh, but the records of the the um, agreement with the sales manager was had disappeared. Interesting, so, uh, and so. What did you learn from that experience all those years ago? Probably our due diligence wasn't wasn't good enough. Uh, we should have we should have cited all all the uh, employment agreements. Um, and probably the worst thing was post acquisition. I think that's really important that once you buy a company, that you make sure that you um, how you how you approach the post acquisition. Because obviously all the employees of that company, they're a bit nervous and, uh, and you know, you, and I quite like that nervous tension for about a month. Like I don't go in and say, hey, listen, we're going to make this company great again because everyone then expects salary increases and expects plenty of money to be flowing in um, to support the company. So I prefer to go in and say, hey, listen, 
I don't know, give me a month and and I'll tell you where we're at. Um, which gives me a chance. So that does give nervous tension for about a month. And it does give me a chance to find out who the good people are and who the ones that aren't good. And so, um, so the good people, I make sure I really look after them and make sure they know that, hey, you are stars, we want to keep you. And the bad ones, I don't give them too much encouragement. So after a month, I then say, okay, hey, listen, here's where we're going to go. And, Got it. Uh, and often some people disappear and the good ones stay. In this case, I left the post acquisition to somebody else and and he became a bit arrogant and um, and people didn't like him. People left, including the sales manager and his team. Um, so and, was the, left. and was the person in charge of post acquisition the former owner or did you hire outside to... No, it was to... a, a person who had done very, very well in New Zealand um, as a manager and I sent him to Australia. Unfortunately, taking his first role as uh, being the general manager, he, uh, his, his ego came out. I know there's yeah. some some friendly rivalry on the rugby pitch and the cricket field between Australia and New Zealand. Do you think the fact that he was a Kiwi coming into Australia made it more difficult for him to boss around? Uh, was there a cultural piece there at all? No, I don't think so. I think it would work the other way, though. Um, you know, a New Zealander, because it's, it's like the USA and Canada. Um, if... Uh, you know, if Canadian went to the USA, they wouldn't be as much prejudiced if an American came into Canada. And so if an Australian <laughs> came into New Zealand, then we're getting into prejudice. dangerous territory here, Tony. We gotta <laughs> we gotta be careful here. All right. So that's helpful for sure. Context. Thank you for, for sharing that misstep. But that was very early in your career as an acquirer. You obviously learned a ton from yeah. that. You you decided to focus on New Zealand, but you began beyond water and maybe talk through how you thought about your acquisition strategy and 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 going beyond just water to to other categories what happened we said our, our strategic um at a strategy day and said listen what what business are we in and, and we said we're enhancing lives so that's our mission enhancing lives so what can we do that does enhance lives We've got the water that enhanced lives. Um, we need to go into a different category. And so and so we said, let's go into, let's make our two categories, healthy living and healthy homes. And so home tech, which we bought off Paul Nielsen, that was a um, that was the home business. And since then we've added to that, we've added to the healthy living part. Those are the two segments that we stay in and focused on and all our acquisitions are in those will be in those two fields. Tony, I guess a lot of people listening to this may be somewhat intimidated by the idea of acquiring a company. Now, you had steady cash flow, I get it, so that there was that predictability to your revenue. But did you feel in the early days a sense of, uh, like, what were your concerns about acquiring a company? Was this something that came natural to you? I know you have training in accounting, so that you, you had the you know, the, 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 the financial rigor, but was it intimidating for you to buy your first business? Not really, because over the years I have done that. Um, yeah, I mean, there have been small businesses, but each, each one is a learning experience. And I think after a while you develop a, uh, 
a pattern and certainly the things, the criteria that you are really important to you in an acquisition. And that's what changes the acquisition from, uh, from say, a multiple of three times EBITDA to seven or eight times EBITDA. Yeah, I want to get into that for sure. Um, but let's, before we do that, I want to get a, a few more kind of housekeepings out of the way. We met through Paul Nielsen. And so for my listeners, if you haven't listened to Paul Nielsen's episode, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it because Paul references a fellow named Tony he met at an EO conference. And we're actually talking to that very Tony. So Paul sold his company to Tony. So if you want to hear the entrepreneur's uh, sort of point of view uh, of, of approaching Tony, then I think it would be great to, uh, to go back and listen to Paul's episode. But we're going to get into to kind of Tony's perspective and what he looks for in an acquisition. Before we get into the actual criteria of what makes something worth three versus seven times, but, uh, I'd be curious to know how many ideas potential acquisitions do you evaluate in a given month? I mean, I'm curious to know, are you, are you, you know, getting daily ideas of businesses that you could buy? Is it weekly? Do you get one a month, one a year? Like what's the volume? Well, I think we're on everybody's books. So anything that comes along. So, so we get them all the time and most of them are discarded immediately. You don't even what get... makes them discarded in your mind? What, what why would They're you either... discard something immediately? They're either too small or they're off focus. Um, they, uh, yeah, they're really, they're re yeah. I suppose most of them are because they're not really in the in the category we want, or they're too small. Um, and by too small, we want something that's sort of got a little bit of infrastructure. Um, normally, it would be probably a turnover of three to five million. So they've been going. They've they've got a bit of a history. Um, they're, they're all, you know, that's all important. What is it about the three to five million mark that you think? Because I mean, some listeners would say, well, you know, I've got, I feel like I'm an established business. I've got a million dollars in revenue. I've got six employees. We've been around for 26 years. I mean, we've been around. So what is it about hitting three to five that, that gets on your radar? Normally it's the infrastructure, but, you know, I mean, right at the moment we're looking and we have bought businesses of a million dollars. Um, they're normally owner-operator, um, but a very, very tidy business that we can just plug straight in. And so they've got the same, uh, there's not too much to do. They just plug straight into our business and it's an add-on. You've used the word infrastructure twice. I want to dig deeper there. So one thing I've heard is revenue turnover is part of that infrastructure. When you say they've got some infrastructure, what other things beyond revenue are you referring to? Uh, means that they've got people to, to run the business, that they're not just a lot of small businesses, all they're doing is really earning a salary for their uh, for their owner, and we want someone that is you know that there's some uh, they do good accounts. Um, I mean, some some a lot of very, very small companies they operate their own their own business and their family and everything else operates within the same the same structure. We want something. Hey, it's quite distinct. This is a business, and uh, and that's why it's up in three to five million dollars. Got it. And when you see an idea that is pitched to you that is clearly uh, being pitched in an auction type 
model where they're the the M&A banker or the owner is trying to create competitive tension. They're trying to create a marketplace for acquirers to sort of compete over the deal. I've heard from some acquirers that they instantly opt out of those sorts of arrangements because they don't want to participate in an auction. Others are happy to participate and are and, and willing to participate. What's your view when you get a sense that an auction is being created? Well, we are very lucky in that we're we're a small listed public company. And so our price our price earnings is a lot higher than most private companies. So we can afford to pay pay the best uh, the best price. And we will pay the best price. So we I don't mind paying Paying more, knowing I'm to get the deal. If I really want it, I'll pay. I'll pay the owner more because I I get the immediate uplift in terms of um, in terms of our our share price. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. So, Just Life Group for folks who are interested, you you can uh, you can Google them. They're they're publicly traded in New Zealand. Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the total market cap is somewhere around 54, 55 million trailing 12 months revenue, most of which is recurring, as you point out, is 34 million. Uh, roughly EBITDA just shy of $8 million. So if I'm backing into the EBITDA multiple on market cap, it's around almost seven times your EBITDA would equate to your market cap. So if I'm, if I'm getting the math right, if you buy a business for less than seven times EBITDA, it's accretive. You apply right. that that profitability to your financial statements and you get a lift effectively if the market's trading you know compensating you at seven almost eight times ebitda if you yeah, that's right john i mean the market's down a bit so um everywhere know, it's <laughs> yeah it's down so last so last year it was around about 10 times <laughs> okay so so is that your ceiling? Like when you go into an acquisition, do you say, no matter what, it's got to be accretive. I've got to be able to get it for less than 10 times EBITDA. More or less. Um, sometimes we go we go very close to that uh, that number. Uh, yeah. It's a very, very good. So various, it, it hits all our criteria and say, hey, listen, this is a great acquisition. Got it. Got it. And it's helpful for folks to hear how the market affects your acquisition thinking, because a lot of people are saying, you know, as we record this, the NASDAQ is down, I don't know, 30 points, the Dow's down 20 points. I don't know what the New Zealand Stock Exchange is doing, but I'm assuming it's down like the rest of them. And so, you know, if you are being approached by a public company like Tony's, you can bet that their appetite to pay a premium has diminished because their stock, in effect, has been affected by the same market everybody else has. That's helpful. So you're you're willing to go to the accretive line for an exceptional business, but it's got to be, you know, it's got to tick all the boxes. Yeah, an exceptional business that we think we can grow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. Which leads me to the criteria. So you mentioned, you know, some businesses look more like three times EBITDA, other businesses maybe looking like seven or even 10 times EBITDA. Like what are the criteria that you you are looking for that, leans you to pay more for a business and and what are the some well, of the, the drawbacks what i what i find really interesting is right through my career whether interest rates have been one percent or two percent or whether they've been in new zealand they got up to 18 percent back in the 80s um, 
you are always able to buy private businesses for around about four four times EBITDA. Now, some some industries they're less, like uh, a services business is often uh, based, you know, might be one or two times revenue. But normally you would start off at four four times EBITDA. For example, buying Paul Nielsen's business, $2 million, we paid him $8 million. Um, so you start off at that as, as a base, and then there are criteria that, that you have. For, for me, I mean, they're, they're probably, we, we have a, a list of about 10 criteria that we look for and sort of mark them out of 10. And probably the, um, probably the main one is, is just, if it's an ongoing business model, and that and that means it's like a it's like the rental model, or in the case of um, about health, it was hey people are buying supplements they keep on buying them. We looked at a a, um, a company. There's a very interesting one because we looked at a company just earlier this year um, that ticked all our boxes. It was a very similar. It had uh, uh, 4,800 customers and they're buying on a regular basis. Um, it was direct to, cons to consumer. Very, what we thought was a very tidy company. When we got into it, um, and I have to say over $300,000 in due diligence, it was quite a large acquisition. Um, we found it wasn't as tidy as we, as we thought it was at the beginning in that it, there were compliance issues that that they weren't, you know, they weren't complying with, and uh, we had to walk away. So, to me, the three hundred thousand dollars we spent on due diligence was well worthwhile, but it certainly hit our bottom line. Yeah, it's still a non-recoverable expense. I mean, that's just sunk money, right? right? Um, and I and I'm not sure always, as the entrepreneurs, we appreciate that. Acquires also incur expenses. Obviously, 99% of the time on this show, we talk about the expenses, both emotional and financial, that entrepreneurs invest in getting a deal done. Uh, but but acquires also invest in in getting a deal done financially in due diligence. That's, that's interesting. Um, I'd like to get into a little bit more around the diligence piece as well. But before we go there, let me just understand what are some of the other criteria. So one of them is, uh, and I'll refer to that as kind of recurring revenue. So ongoing business, you're looking for something that has yep. recurring or reoccurring revenue, one of those two. So the second one is um, that it's clean and tidy or simple. And that means that when we go after the acquisition, do we have to change computer systems? Are there a whole lot of changes we have to make? Uh, because they're, you know, they're big costs that we may have to, may have to uh, do. So if it's uh, if it's absolutely tidy and we see, hey, we can fit this straight into our business, that becomes a, you know, very, very good, good one. Um, the cost of a customer, if a customer has been spending money in, uh, you know, in establishing a brand, we're getting that for nothing. So they spend a lot of money over, you know, many years establishing a brand. Um, that's a that's a very good on our criteria list. And, and if they have a distinguished that, brand that people appreciate in the marketplace, that'll that, yeah. that'll that'll mean you'd be willing to pay a premium. So okay. they've made an investment in the future, and we get the advantage of that. The size of the customer base is significant. Um, you know, will if you have um, one customer that's fifty percent of your business, that's high risk. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so so would be nervous about that. 
Um, I was imagine significant. If we, uh, you know, I think a business with less than thirty percent margin, we just wouldn't look at. It's just, do you mean uh, do you mean gross profit margin or net profit margin when you say margin? Uh, gross margin. Gross, gross margin. margin. Okay. So sales That's less, helpful. cost of sales. Uh, we want we want thirty percent. Um, only in the, you know, I mean, I know if you're in a, in a mass market, you could take less, but they're not, that's not the sort of market we're in. So we want at least 30%. Uh, cash flow, you know, does it require investment? Like if it's a manufacturing business, hey, that's going to require, you know, a whole lot of investment. That, you know, we're, we're a bit weary of that. If we can save costs, if we see ourselves, gee, hey, listen, and we do look at it from our point of view. If we say, hey, we can absorb it um, totally without bringing in a, a manager. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of normalizing the profit, we have a manager in there. We have $150,000 in there as a manager, even though we know, hey, listen, we're not going to need that. that. That's a saving to us. So it's not a, it's not a saving for you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Vendor. <laughs> we include a manager. Um, so when you you normalize the EBITDA, so you adjusted EBITDA, you've got a, a market rate compensation for a general manager for the business. But even though inside your mind you're like, I might not need that person, the vendor will normalize his profit, his uh, what he thinks the profit should be, and then we'll take that and say, Hey, no, you well, you may you need a manager in there. We'd we'd need a manager if we buy this because you, Mister Owner, is going away. Obviously, if it's if it's well established, the high barriers to entry, that's a very big plus. And then I think you know the big one. I mean, risk is minimised by the acquisition price. We're we're doing one now, which is you know we get to around about three times EBITDA, but it it looks pretty risky to us. It could, but I'm saying to our guys, hey, listen, even if the profit is half what it is, it's still going to be a good buy. So. Um, so, you know, I mean, we're just starting DD on it now, but. Um, when you say it's going to be a good buy, what's your case to your partners that it's going to be a good buy? Because you're still buying a business. You're you're putting cash at, at work and at risk. When you say it's going to be a good buy, what's your calculus? On that, in this case, it fits into what we're doing into our, into our current business. So it's an add-on to our current business and um, Without too much effort, and it provides us with a lot of opportunities in that it's a uh, it's a global business, and um, with direct to consumer, so it's exactly what we do now, except we do it locally. So we uh, we think that will provide us opportunities to provide our current product into into those overseas customers. So there are Got lots it. of we see some upside there. That's super helpful in terms of what you look for in an acquisition in the companies that you buy. When you actually get to meet the entrepreneurs, what do you find intoxicating about them that you you love to be around them? Like, what do you find to be impressive when you meet the entrepreneurs behind these companies? Well, from an acquisition point of view, it's uh it's in terms of just being being organized. Um, what we try to do, and we did this with Paul, we've done this with most of the acquisitions, we, we, the vendor will always say, hey, listen, next year, business is gonna go up like this. 
you know, really going to go the big hockey stick. And we say, that's great. So say they did $2 million EBITDA this year, but say next year it'll be $3 million. And we say, hey, that's great. Why don't you stay in the business and get that $3 million? We'll pay you, say, say it is four times two now, we'll pay you $8 million now, and we'll pay you four times, when you get the three, we'll pay you four times three, which is $12 million, less the $8 million we've paid. So, and all we'll do, we won't change the business, all we'll do is be directors, and if there are any good ideas, it's gonna help us too. So uh, we'll be doing everything we can to help you get $3 million, but you decide, you make all the decisions. We're not gonna change anything or say, hey, that person's an idiot, we may say it, but, uh, all we'll do is be advisors. It's up to you to get the $3 million. And that yeah, way so uh, we learn the business. We, we then feel very, very comfortable with the business um, until the, you know, the end of the year. It might be nine months left of the year or whatever it is. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that really works for us. Yeah, so you're raising the specter of an earnout and structure. In effect, except we're like not, that. yeah, we absolutely leave it to them to run the business. Yeah. So yeah. we don't have our own manager in or anything. That's helpful. So an, so again, back to my question around what is impressive about entrepreneurs. I heard I heard when, when someone comes to you who's organized, who knows their numbers, who has their numbers at their fingertips, that's impressive. Somebody who is willing to stay on and hit their earn out is something that's appetizing for for you. Is there anything else you you look for in you know, the softer qualitative attributes of the people that you are potentially investing in or buying? Well, obviously we're, you know, you're, you're always looking for, hey, what's the risk? And so we're looking at, hey, why why are they selling? Uh, it's, it's pretty important. Um, you know, normally they say they want to go and, go and uh, play with their kids more, but often there's something else. And we want to find out what that something else is. And how do you go about finding out what's behind the real reason that they're thinking of selling? Oh, what's just by, you know, we don't go into, we don't go into confrontational relationships with them. We go into very, very friendly. Hey, listen, we're doing DD. In fact, what I do is I become the, like the PR guy. I say, hey, listen, the accountants, they're doing all that. Um, so that's not my field. Uh, so we'll go out and we'll have lunch and, and we'll just talk the talk the business. And uh and normally people are, you know, become relatively open. Yeah. So we try yeah. not to we don't want to get into a confrontational thing once we've agreed on indicative price. Um you know, we'll uh we'll you know, we just have the discussion from then on. Yeah. Well what's a turn off in and when you start to dig into a business, maybe during due diligence, what what sorts of things are deal killers for you in those conversations you have with those entrepreneurs? Yeah, generally we just, uh, normally we've asked enough questions before we put in an indicative price that we do understand the business. So we've, we've already walked away. Um, so then let's look at before the letter of intent is signed, what, what yeah. would make you walk away pre-LOI? Uh, all sorts. We just find that uh, we don't like the people. We say, hey, listen, I just don't get a good sense that they're, that everything's above board here. Um, so that's just an intuitive feel. 
and the more the more I like the business, the more it's going to fit into our uh, into our business. The less sensitive I am to <laughs> to those sort of things. So, what's the worst deal you've done, Tony? With maybe with the exception of the one in Australia where the sales managers ran off with half the customers. I'm curious to know, and you don't have to name the name of the entrepreneur, or even yeah. like the name of the company. Obviously, you can leave that as as an, as uh, off the table. But can you tell a story about a situation where you thought the business was great, you didn't love the entrepreneur, but you held your nose and bought it anyways, and ended up regretting it? Yeah, no, we bought business a few years ago. I was a bit nervous about it. A bit nervous because it was one guy who he was he was the business. And and he was a very good sales guy, so he was also very good at trying to sell his business to me. And um, and I suppose I should have sensed it that he was uh, he was right. He was he was the business, and when he left, the uh, yeah the same business wasn't there because he was you know he was like the typical entrepreneur. He was there twenty four hours a day, and, uh, and and we came in and. You know, wanted to put a manager in and uh, couldn't run it as well as the entrepreneur could could run the business. It wasn't a disaster, but it was uh, certainly a lot less profitable and took us a while to turn around, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the key learning there? Uh, yeah, you do just have to be have to be careful on that on that key man, the the, the entrepreneur himself. That the business is not critical, so that's. Yeah, I mean that's one thing. Yeah, we just we're always looking at how critical is this guy, and that's why we like him to to run the business for us, so we really can see how critical he is and learn from him all the time. Because normally they become pretty, you know, they become part of your team. You know, if they're there for seven or eight months, and you're trying to help them, they can see that you're trying to help them get that big earn out. Um, they become part of your team, and you can uh, and yeah, you can, you can find the things that, that hey, you need to do when 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 they're gone, and often yeah. they're pretty helpful after they've gone. Yeah, we've we've heard a lot, as you might imagine, Tony. We've heard a lot of sort of horror stories when it comes to earnouts. Uh, you know, things like the acquirer unilaterally applying certain costs on on the business's profit and loss statement, making it you know depressing its EBITDA, not you know releasing budget that was committed to them. I mean, there's all sorts of stories that we've heard on this show. And and I'm wondering for someone who is leery of accepting an earnout, how would you or how do you allay their concerns? Well, I think earnouts are, are, are negative and, and for the vendor, they are very negative. So our one is very clean and we say, hey, listen, there are these companies you can go to. We've done this basis. We don't touch. We don't, you know, it's your business. Even though we've paid you up front, it's your business until the earnout is finished. So we say, hey, talk to these businesses first and uh, and be quite sure that, that it's, not a, it's not a proper earnout where we can have any control over it, even though we own, yeah, we own or paid you, um, paid you out. It's your business in terms of running the thing. Yeah, I think a lot of entrepreneurs right now are weighing offers from 
on one hand, a strategic acquirer like Just Life, where the deal is structured as an upfront payment, maybe with an earnout component. And they're comparing and contrasting that with a private equity deal, majority recapitalization usually, where the private equity company is saying, hey, we're going to buy 60% of your business uh, and we want you to roll 40% of your equity into a new entity. So it's not an earnout in a traditional way, but they, they need to maintain call it 40% or 30% of their equity into this new entity with the vision that you know the private equity group will, will go and sell the new entity you know, five, seven years down the road. It, you know, For entrepreneurs evaluating those two different structures, what, what advice would you give them if they are considering you know, a strategic acquire with an earnout or a private equity group with a, you know, a, a, an equity role? Yeah. <clears throat> Well, I suppose it's looking at what they've done in the past. But the private equity company, it's, uh, hey, what have you done? Tell us about the ones you've done and let us talk to them. Um, I think getting references is, is really important for, for the buyer um, to say, hey, listen, you know, it's uh, due diligence works both ways. And I think for the, for the uh, vendor, be able to ask, hey, what acquisitions have you done? We want to find out that, hey, you you offer a price of say $2 million for out for my business, you do due diligence and then you say, oh no, we'll only give you $1 million. Um, we just want to find out what sort of end, what sort of uh, acquirer you are. So give us some references. It won't give you references yeah. and that's, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. And so would you let uh, a potential acquisition, like the entrepreneur selling a company to you, would would you let even encourage them to talk to other businesses, the, the owners or founders of other businesses you've acquired? Would, is that part of your strategy? Yeah, we encourage that. We say, hey, listen, you know, because we, we think we think that, you know, we've got values and we're up front, we're, you know, we're, uh, that we'll be doing the right thing. So, so we say, hey, listen, these are the acquisitions we've done over the last three years. You go and talk to any one of them, and this is the person. And we encourage it. We not only encourage it, we virtually demand it. We say, "Hey, listen, talk to these people, find out who we are and what we are, because we don't want you having doubts as we go through due diligence." And I mean, sometimes we will go through due diligence. We say, "Hey, listen, this was not what we thought here," and we will go down and it's. it's I mean, I, yeah, I can really only think of one instance where we've really uh, had to come in and say, hey, listen, I know we offer you this, but this is what we did. We found out in DD. We just, uh, we have to cover that. So uh, you're referring obviously to what our audience would would know as retrading. So uh, how many deals have you done um, in the last little while? The last five years, we've done six deals. Six deals. So one of the six, there was, you found, you discovered things in due diligence that forced you to renegotiate the price effectively. But five of the six, the price you paid was what the the original letter of intent was for or close to it. And also the one where we had to negotiate, I I didn't mind that one because that was with a private equity company. So they were were getting top price anyway. Right. We were buying off, off a private equity company. Got it. Got it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And they were maybe less emotional too, uh, I'm assuming, because they were looking at it as a financial decision as opposed to an entrepreneur. Do you find, like, what is your um, advice to entrepreneurs who, you know, do take the sale of their business fairly emotionally, right? Like it, it is, it's, it, there are so many layers to it, obviously, right? There's the, this is my life's work and you must honor it. And you, you, you know, you, you're validating it financially and that's important to me. It's also my largest asset and the secret to a successful retirement. Uh, you know, there's all of the overlays of self-worth that goes into self-identity of being an entrepreneur and and so losing that or potentially losing that when you sell your company. I mean, there's just so many layers of of it, the emotional component. But I'm guessing that you see that when you talk to founders of businesses. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what do you see as the emotional kind of disposition of the entrepreneurs you're negotiating with? Well, that's often the uh, the yeah the owner. You're right. They put a they put their life uh, into this business, and um, we had one uh, yeah, late last year, which we looked at. We would have we really wanted um, it would have fitted straight into our business. And it was, um, so up to October, the business had declined by 17%. And, and so in order to come to, it was a March year end, they had put, well, what we're expecting for the year is where we are now at October, plus everything else, the same as the previous year. And we said, well, that's unlikely. There's no reason why that will happen. It will be 17%. We'd have to take the way we would look at it, it'd be 17% down for the year. So we'd look at that. So we did that. And then with the costs, et cetera, the EBIT, EBITDA came down significantly. And uh, and in that case, even though it was a declining business, normally we would pay three three times EBITDA for a, for a declining business at 17% decline. Um, in this case, there were enough other positives that we, that we said we'll pay four times, but it was reduced EBITDA now. And he couldn't get that round in his head. So I've worked here, you know, I've built this business up over 20 years. And, uh, and you know, but I think we left on good terms. And then, in fact, I went back to him earlier this year um, and, and said, listen, I know that, uh, you know, we talked last year and uh, we didn't come to terms, but... You know, by now you'll now now know what your profit was for the year. So do you want to start talking? And he says, "Well, listen, I'm still considering it with my family and what we're going to do and etc. Cetera, etc." Cetera. So you know, you might come back. Yeah, and and so help me understand, Tony. Uh, why not go further? So, as we talked about earlier last year, before the the kind of markets came off as they have just life was trading at roughly 10 times uh, EBITDA. And we're talking about buying a company for three times and maybe pushing to four and him saying, look, this is my life work. I'm not taking any less, even though that, you know, that my EBITDA has gone down. Why not? Like, why? Again, I, I'm asking this because not, not to challenge you, but, but to kind of help my listeners understand your rationale for not going to five times or six times or seven times. Like, what is it about going to those numbers that, because clearly you could afford it yeah. and still be accretive. So why not go to the higher numbers? 
Uh, in in that case, I mean, it was it was a declining business. We didn't know we, we'd be able to turn it around. Mm. Um, we uh, the biggest thing for us was in fact the the customer base because we were online in terms of our supplement business. We're totally online, and so here was a business that had quite a good base around about twenty thousand uh, customers that we would be adding on to our base that we we could sell our our product to. Um, I know that no one else will pay will pay the price. Will pay uh, you know four times for a business like that, that that's declining so much. And so uh, yeah, we could be. We think that we that we're pretty nice, but we're not going to be just stupid. Yeah, um, and, and and help me understand how you you finance these acquisitions. I was looking at the the about health acquisition that you made. It looked like that was. Um, a relatively large acquisition. I think 17 million was the number uh, reported. So that involved a debt facility and and some additional share sale, I believe, to raise the money to for that acquisition. Yeah. Am I am I getting that right? Yeah, I mean, we only we only raised three million, and that was really just a pretty simple share uh, raise from from current investors, um, and the rest we took as as bank debt. Um, again, we've got some pretty good cash flow, so the bank knows they're going to get their money back. Um, and the bank debt, is that guaranteed by collateralized by the company, or do you have to sign a personal guarantee for that bank debt? No, no. No, I'm, I was out of personal guarantees a long time ago. <laughs> I figured as much, no, we but never, I wanted to ask. We would never sign a personal guarantee. Um, and is there recourse for the entire Just Life business? Like, let's say you buy a company, just like market cap is $54 million, you, you borrow $10 million to buy a company. If the, if, the, if the deal goes south and they need to get their money back, can, can they come after all of Just Life's assets? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So they've got full recourse on everything. So yep. they're kind of, they're protected. Yeah, they're, they're very protected. Yeah. Yeah. So in that yeah. case, we went to, um, Initially, so we're paying seven, you know, buying it for seventeen million. We went to an investor broker, to uh, investment bank, to raise twenty million dollars, and they really were, they treated us almost with disdain. You know, they it was mm. even though they would earn a million dollars on that deal, they um, they wanted to do the hundred million dollar deal. And so we went through and, and yeah, you know, we prepared an information memorandum, went right through, and then um, and then we thought, you know, we we can get that money from the bank. Why do we really want to do this? Uh, at that stage, interest rates were 3%. Uh, it just made sense to, to borrow the money. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to get, again, I'm going to ask a very personal question. So I'm going to tell you up front, and I totally understand if you can't answer it, don't want to answer it, totally appreciate that. But I'm, what I'm trying to do is get, our listeners, entrepreneurs who might one day sell a business to a group like Just Life, I'm trying to get inside your mind and your position. So you've started this company, Just Life. You, I believe, are the majority shareholder or a significant shareholder in it. And it's a it's a publicly traded company. You're using a combination of cash flow and debt uh, to finance some acquisitions. If the debt goes bad, the bank has recourse on all of Just Life. And again, it's a significant 
valuable company. What proportion of Tony's net worth is just life? And before you answer that, I'm, I, 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 the reason I'm asking it is I want to understand, are you betting the farm effectively when you go to acquire a company and, the, and you're getting a bank to lend you that money? Are you betting the majority of your net worth that it's going to work out? Or is this a tiny proportion and if it doesn't, you know, if you lose just life, you've got a bunch of other stuff in the background. Do you know what I'm asking? I'm trying to get my, you know, I'm trying to get in your head how much risk you are taking on when you buy these businesses. Well, in my case, um, so I have a, a house that's debt free um, and, uh, and some other, you know, other income producing assets. So... So I've always said, if this company went went under, I'm still okay. Okay, so that's helpful. So you've got to sort of, you're not betting the farm every, you know, no. when you when you no. use that bank debt, like you're not you're not betting the entire farm on on it. You've got other other things. That's I mean, people say to me, Tony, when are you going to retire? And I say, listen, I love playing the game, and to me, it is it's a it's a great game. I love going to work every day and and playing the game. But you've limited your downside risk so that that in the event of catastrophe, you yeah. still have you're still you're still fine. Yeah, no, I feel yeah, safe. that's helpful. For my sure. wife, my wife feels safe. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay, that's super helpful. We've had, uh, and I care. I've, I've talked to my uh, listeners about this idea of retrading before. I'm not sure. Are you familiar with that expression? Is that common in New Zealand? when you effectively agree to a set of terms and a letter of intent, but for whatever reason, the, you have to renegotiate after before right. the deal goes through. Um, and I've, I've referred to as legitimate and illegitimate retrading. Legitimate being your EBIT is down 17%. Uh, we need to re, you know, we need to retrade this deal because we're versus illegitimate retrading, which is where the acquirer knows the entrepreneur has, mentally checked out of their business and bought the vacation home in their mind and and uses the fact that the acquirer the seller is mentally committed to the deal to retrade um what's your experience with other buyers because i know you're competing with other potential buyers on some of these deals i mean do, do you see illegitimate retrading in the way i've described it happen in the market yeah i think so i mean it's uh, uh particularly uh, I know private equity companies are, uh, you know, well known for that, um, and very, very, you know, very, very tight on on everything. Uh, you know, I'd I'd feel uncomfortable selling to a private equity company there because uh, they are going to renegotiate terms. Um, in terms of because New Zealand's very fairly small. Um, you just don't want to be seen as an unfair, unfair trader, you know. Where because also all the all the agencies, the they want to deal with you. They know that hey, you're straight. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna say yes or no. Um, and if you if you if you're not, they're gonna leave you out. So so you're not gonna get the deals. So at the moment, you know, deals come across and hey, yeah, we'll try turning on this one. Yeah, and uh, it probably means I get more than most people because I. Because they say, hey, at least we know that he's a buyer, he's serious. Uh, if he's serious, he'll say he's serious. If he's not, 
he'll throw it away. Yeah. Warren Buff is famous for saying, you know, like you should be able to write the agreement on one piece of paper, right? Like if it's going beyond that, you're, you're in trouble. At least agree to the set of terms with the seller and, you know, before you pass it off to the lawyers, once, once yeah. you pass off the lawyers, the essential elements. So what I think of essential yeah. elements in, in the acquisition of a business, I think of obviously the sale price is, a, is an essential component. Uh, the working capital calculation is, is usually a significant piece of, of uh, element to, to negotiate. The third is any sort of performance incentives downstream. So earnout or some sort of transition period. I think there's a lot of talk about uh, you know, shares versus assets. And I'm sure there's others that you think about. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know, when you make an offer, which elements are you most reticent to budge on? Like which ones are like, this is, I'm not moving on this deal point versus which deal points are less important to you that, you know, for the right deal you might budge on? Uh well, first of all, uh, the thing is that I want to agree on right up front is and say to them, hey, listen, let's just agree on price. Let's just because otherwise, you know, walk away. Uh, you know, so if, either, if, either if, one of us will walk away. Right. If uh, you're thinking four times EBITDA and they've got it in their head that they're worth 12 times EBITDA, you want to yeah. know that up front. I'll say, hey, that's great. We're, we're not in, it, in the deal. So that's a, that's a yeah, that's a, a, a big one. Then, um, yeah, I try and keep it simple. I mean, uh, you know, the last deal was, well, if you talk about the deal with Paul, we sat in a bar and he, he tells me what his profit is. He says his normalized profit was $2 million. I said, we'll give you $8 million for your business. So that's where it started. So once we agreed on price, we then went back and forth. Um, we agreed we try not to get we try not to get lawyers talking to each other too much. So we try and get them all in one room. When we've got down to, you know, there's normally four or five things that, hey, they may not be deal stoppers, but uh, but sometimes they are. But we then get we then get both sets of lawyers into a room, say, hey, let's see if we can agree on these things or not. And so again, when when it comes to a deal, certainly the price is 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 critical so you got to know you're in the same sort of ballpark with the with the with the seller what other terms are are you firm on like if they say look it's got to be an asset deal or it's got to be a share deal and you want an asset deal would you budge on that would you budge on you know uh look i'm not i'm not accepting an earnout. you know I'll, I'll i'll do a one-year employment contract but I, i'm not signing up for an earnout. like where where's the wiggle room and what's totally unnegotiable yeah like we're fairly i mean in in this deal we did in this that we were going to do in australia we um we agreed it would be an asset deal um and then they came after we'd agreed on this they came back to us and said hey listen we really want to do a share deal because the capital gains tax we can push that out if we do a share deal and uh and so we agreed to that. We said, hey, there is going to be extra costs, and those are going to be your costs, which were um, extra costs and, uh, well, in effect, legal costs if, uh, by doing a share deal. We, we'd we want more uh, covenants based on that, you know, that they'd have to have to meet. 
Um, so, so we're flexible on that. The sort of things that no goes, um, they're always different in every in every deal. But normally, you come down to one or two that you say, "Hey, listen, that that is non-negotiable." Yeah, you've done six deals in the, in the recent past. Who? And you don't again have to use names. We can just an- anonymize them. But who was the best negotiator, and what did they do to negotiate the best deal possible? Like who? Who was great? Uh, in our case, we well, I'll tell you the company. So the company was about health, right? It was a supplement mm-hmm. company, seventeen million dollars we paid, which was eight and a half times EBITDA, right? Very high. What had happened, I had tried to buy this company off. I'd gone to the vendor, I really liked supplement business, probably about six or seven years ago. And we, um, anyway, a deal didn't happen. And so I rang him up again a couple of years ago and I said, Dan, what, remember we spoke a few years ago? And he said, oh, he says, I sold, I sold 70% of my business to a private equity company. To a private equity group, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so we, we met the, and he said, but listen, I'll put, put you onto them. And they said, yep, no, we'd be interested in talking to you. We've only, we've only had it for three or four years. So obviously private equity, I need to own, make a profit. Yeah. Did you ever find out what they paid for it as a multiple of EBITDA? What's that? Did you ever find out what they paid for it as a multiple of yeah, EBITDA? They paid, they paid six times hmm. and, uh, and anyway, so we, uh, so they did a beautiful job on us in convincing us why, because they could understand, they understand the, the share market and everything, and convinced us why it was worth, uh, I think they started off about nine times, nine and a half times, I think, <laughs> and why it was worth that. So uh, when you yeah. say they did a beautiful job describing the share market, they were pitching you on the effect the acquisition would have on the share price of just like group well really they they did a very a, a very good sell job on hey this is why this is going to be great for you just like group this is this is a great deal for you and obviously it was a great deal for them because they you know they made a few million dollars along the way we knew that um we knew that they had uh they needed really to have that sale because they had a fund that was, um, and they're about to start a second fund. So they hadn't sold any, any of their acquisition. Yeah. The listeners of this show are in the seat of selling their business and they want to get the best deal they can. And what I'm hearing you say is one of the ways to do that is sell the acquirer on why they need to buy your business. And I think that makes intuitive sense, but I'd be curious to go a level deeper. Like, what was it? You said they did a very good sales job. Can you just give me a specific example of something they did or said that you thought, man, that is a great sales tactic <laughs> that, that they just used on us? I think it was that they, um, they, they really knew their numbers. And so they, uh, they were able to put, put their, our business and their own business, what it's going to look like when we've added them and just did a very, very professional, uh, numbers, number calculation to show, Hey, this is going to be a good deal for you guys. So, so they used financial, yeah. uh, you know, fi- financial modeling effectively to make it clear. It sounds like they also did a, a fairly good job using 
the information in the public domain on Just Life Group as a public company, you've got to disclose yeah. a bunch of stuff. And so they use that disclosures to build their spreadsheets, it sounds like. That's right. Is that is that fair? Yeah. So normally, I mean, vendors will always try and say what, uh, oh, how good it is for you, um, which it is, which I say, hey, listen, that's, that's our problem. We're buying, we're buying your business today. And the reason we're buying it is because we think we can do better. They want to sell it on, they normally want to sell it on how, how they think it will be in a year's time. Mm-hmm. Which is why we like this model of uh, getting people to letting them stay there to, to make sure they get it. So what was it that about health did that, that other sellers do not do? I think by doing that financial modeling, they maximized the price they could get. That's, that's the main thing they, they did. They convinced, um, it was more convincing for our board that, um, although, you know, I, I, had, I really had to convince the board that it was, it was worthwhile doing. We knew we were right at the top, at the very top price. But, uh, but from my point of view, it had, uh, I could see the growth that we could do there. They weren't, uh, you know, I don't think they were excellent marketers. Um, and if you think <clears throat> we, uh, you know, the supplements have very, very high margin, extremely high margin. So, um, so although we paid eight and a half times, the actual, if you look at it after a year's time, it was only six times, right? Explain that. If you look at it in two years' time, it'd be about four times. Explain that. I don't understand that. Because we were better marketers, for every million dollars that we could get in that extra turnover, that added round about 700000 to the bottom line. And that's exactly what happened. So we had a uh, 12% increase the first year, and that went straight to the bottom line. So, And, and that's something that, that I don't know everybody appreciates from the seller's perspective about what you go through as a buyer, because... Not only, you know, you've got a board, and and at, although you probably have a lot of influence, you have to get them on side with making this decision. Is is that right? Is this is it just a moral argument that you're trying to make to get them on side, or do you actually have a fiduciary duty to get their approval? To get sorry, who the board's approval? The board, yeah. Do you have to get their approval to make an acquisition or is yeah, it just something yeah. you do out of courtesy? Yeah. So all all acquisitions are subject to board approval and and it has to be the time nobody can say anything until the time we announce it on the stock exchange at the, the, the public the company. Mm. So you've got to not only believe it yourself, but you've in some cases got to go make the case to your fellow board members of why you're going to make that acquisition. Yeah. And and, so, and they're pretty tough on me too. <laughs> yeah. So, what sort of pu- what sort of pushback did you get about life? What sort of questions uh, did they ask you about that one? Was hey, listen, uh, there was a legal letter from this is this is one that really uh, there was a legal letter from an American company saying, hey, listen, you've got a product there which you're mentioning our name or mentioning us in there, uh, where you know we don't like it whatever, never got answered. So we picked that up in BD, that this legal letter was sitting there. And uh, and to me, it was just a standard legal letter. You know, we we were able to do things, remove 
things off the website that mentioned uh, their product and uh, and get over it. But the board was very, very concerned that, hey, these guys come after us and we could be on a hiding to nothing. And so what did you do in that case to mitigate for that risk? Well, we uh, we took a, yeah, I got a lawyer's mouse side. I mean, they... There, there was, there's a legal risk and a commercial risk, and there, you know, they came up. Listen, the commercial risk is very, very low as long as you take these things off your website, and um, and you know, keep on monitoring to make sure you 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 don't mention it was actually an ingredient rather than a than a product. Um, but they want to be quite assured that that uh, that was reasonably safe. Interesting. So that was an example where you got pushed back from a, on a legal deal point. You had to sort of negotiate. And in that case, involved. yeah. And in fact, they they were they didn't want to pay that price. They just said, "Tony, it's much too big." And you know, my argument was, "Well, listen, I can get the growth." Um, so in effect, we had one director was about three million dollars less. Wouldn't go. Well, he was forced by the majority. I was a, I was the highest. That uh, you know, we came back down by by one by a million. Got it. How do owners shoot themselves in the foot in the process of selling their company? In what way do they, you know, I know you're a tennis player. Uh, the concept of a winner is where you you know you hit a ball right past uh, your opponent, and it's a clear winner. In other cases. Uh, it is a self-inflicted wound, right? Where you've got an unforced error, where you've got all the time in the world, you just hit it into the net or whatever. Tell me about the unforced errors that entrepreneurs make in trying to sell their company. Probably just by by trying to do the sell job when the facts aren't there. You know, uh, so they're making it a lot glossier than it really is and you are going to find out that information. They tell you things that, um, you know, we've got this great customer who does this, that, and the other thing, and you find out it's not so, not so rosy. Um, it has to be, you have to be able to say, and it's the same for a public company. If you have to stand in front of a judge, uh, can you say everything I have said here is absolutely true? So they don't want to put out anything in information memorandum uh, or any disclosure that is untrue or or even exaggerate. Help me square that answer, Tony, with what you shared earlier about the About Life team who, quote, put a great sales pitch together. It sounds like About Life was doing almost what you're describing there. They were spinning, they were selling, they were kind of positioning, and and they were they were in your own sort of description selling you on the idea yet you've just said one of the ways the unforced errors is that entrepreneurs sort of exaggerate and sale and you know and you find out so in what like that sounds somewhat contradictory to me but i'm sure it's not but help me square those two ideas uh in their case it was a sell job but it was all based on fact there was nothing okay about health it was a sales job but it there were facts at play yeah yeah Everything was logical, and there was nothing. Um, there was no real puffery about it. Um, they could justify everything that they wrote. 
that's helpful. Whereas entrepreneurs sort of try to spin you with, oh, next year we're going to do three million in EBITDA, or you know, yeah. it's going to be great. This client loves us, and you know, all this sort of superficial puffery, but not necessarily the hard facts. Yeah, that's right. So you know, and for Paul, for example, he he said to us, "Listen, there's a government contract. It ends in three years. You should get it. You should it should roll over." Now, from a, from our point of view, we only took it that hey, it's three years. He wasn't he wasn't saying that you will get it. Just saying, hey, you should get it. We've well, we've had it for seventeen years. There's no reason why you won't get it. Um. So you know, we were quite happy, but but from our point of view, hey, this is a three-year contract. That there's a risk that we won't get it after three years. And certainly, the board took that risk on. Totally uh, looked at that. Said, mm. And what happened? <laughs> and the truth is, what happened after three years? We lost half of it. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> the government contract. Interesting. But you had to incur that expense. Yeah, like, I mean, that by was, that uh, point, we, you, we, you knew it, we knew it up front. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, last question, and I, I mean, I, I think this is sort of an open-ended question, but I'd love to sort of wrap on this, and, and that is what advice you're now talking to entrepreneurs, people like Paul and others that have businesses that maybe they do a million in turnover or... 5 million or 10 million in turnover, those are the, the people you're speaking to right now. And and I'd love just to, to have you say what advice you would have for them if their aspiration is to sell their business to someone like you. I mean, the, the big thing is to be absolutely prepared. So it's worthwhile, even for a smaller company, get your accountant in there, get them to, to put something together to make it look very clean all the facts are there and um and that's worth investing in in doing whether it's a even for a small business hey get it very, very tidy yeah yeah years ago i did an interview um for with the founders of a, of a company called uh, barefoot winery which is one of the largest independent wineries in the united states they sold ultimately to j uh, ian j gallo and they did what you're describing. They they spent the time up front really preparing their business for sale, doing all the due diligence and getting all the, the pre-diligence, really getting all the numbers and you know in in order. And I said, but but why did you do that if you weren't sure you were going to make a sale? Like if you weren't sure you were going to be able to to consummate a deal. And and the founder said, well. We knew two things. Number one, if we did the work, the deal would go more smoothly. And if we didn't get an offer from E&J Gala, which was the company they approached first, E&J Gala would know we were going to do a deal. And if they didn't buy us, somebody else would. And so it was a way to subtly communicate to the acquirer that there was going to be competitive tension for this deal. In other words, they were going to sell. And if they didn't, if E&J Gallo did not acquire Barefoot, someone, one of their other competitors would. And I wonder in your case, when you see a very prepared, very buttoned down, very sophisticated seller, does that go through your mind that, well, if we don't buy them, our competitor might? Well, it's, it's just a price that we think it's, it's worth. So we'd say, 
hey, listen, this one is worth to us. We think we're on the high side. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't really, uh, we don't worry. I mean, normally we, we think that, hey, this is going to be a fair price. Um, if someone else is stupid enough to pay a whole lot more, well, good on them. <laughs> it sounds like you're super confident in in what you do, which is which is fantastic. I know people are going to want to reach out to you, maybe maybe reach out with a business they want to sell you. So what what's the best way for folks to find you, Tony? Are, are you okay with LinkedIn connections? Is that the, yeah, the sort of best uh, place to reach out? I'm the I'm the only chief executive in New Zealand that has my email address and my mobile number on our website. Uh, but uh, my you know my email address is Tony F at justlife.co.nz. Awesome. And we'll put that in the show notes at Built to Sell. So if anyone has any questions, they're welcome to uh, contact me directly. Fantastic, Tony. Thanks for doing this. Okay. Thanks, John. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed John Warlow's conversation today with Tony Falkenstein. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms mentioned, go ahead and visit builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great guest here at Built to Sell Radio, then you can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you're going to be able to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio. Again, head over to builttosell.com slash nominate. Lastly, if you're a fan of the show and you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, then head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you're going to be able to leave a rating and review. Now, this may seem small, but it makes a massive difference in getting this podcast in front of other individuals just like yourself. So if you've listened to this podcast and it's made a difference in your life, then please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering. And thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.